I wish I could expunge it from my memory. I'm a little concerned that I will remember too much from that movie just because it like burned sort of a hate hole in my brain. <laughs> You've got like CTE lesions from from the Men in Black International. Hello, Mission Recall listeners. I'm Oriana Schwint. And I'm Steve Parkhurst. And we are here with another 90s action movie to talk about. More of an action comedy, I suppose, this time. A sci-fi action comedy, perhaps? That's right. This week, we're entering the Jones Zone. The Smith Space. <laughs> I quit. Oh, no. Hey, we could use another uh, co-host if, if anyone is, is looking to... Put, a, put an ad on Craigslist. Yeah. Anyway, we are talking this week about Men in Black. I know I say stone cold classic a lot on this podcast, but this is truly a stone cold classic in the sci-fi genre, in the action genre, despite not being super action-y. That's kind of one of the surprises of rewatching this movie is how little action there actually is and how that doesn't really matter. Yeah, it feels very propulsive regardless of the... There's only a few action set pieces, really. And they're fairly tame, certainly by today's standards and even by the 90s standards, I would say. They were relatively tame. And, you know, Will Smith was coming off of Independence Day, for crying out loud. And Bad Boys. (laughs) Yeah, which we will get to both of those, don't worry. Like, we will... We will once again be entering the Smith space. So Men in Black came out in 97, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld from a script by Ed Solomon. So I'm not going to go through every plot point on this one because, yeah, of course, everyone's seen Men in Black. And if you haven't, that's on you, man. I don't know what to tell you. Maybe you only saw the WB TV animated series that that was on Saturday morning. Is that not what we're talking about today? Oh, shit. Oh, no. So Men in Black is about a secret organization uh, that is actually private, not a government organization. Whoa. Yeah, it's uh, the, he asks, like, how do you fund all this? And they say, oh, the patents. The patents. He says, we're not part of the government. They ask too many questions. So are they kind of like Northrop Grumman-ish? Like, I don't think they're even a defense contractor. Yeah. Like, they seem like they're just doing it. TSA, baby. They're kind of just alien TSA. <laughs> Anyway, so this uh, private organization monitors and controls alien activity on planet Earth. They say, I don't recall the exact numbers, but there's somewhere around like 1,500 aliens on Earth at any given moment, and most of them are on the island of Manhattan, where the majority of our film takes place. We follow Agent K, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and Agent J, played by Will Smith as they save the world from a bug, played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who is trying to, I guess, get... An... He wants to take the pl- this little galaxy. So he wants to kind of feast on, like, the, the carnage after the Archelians destroy Earth because they believe that Earth has stolen the galaxy, which is this tiny little, uh, like, jewel, jewel that is actually a full galaxy, which creates... Energy. energy yeah I, I think the reason we're both a little fuzzy on it is that it doesn't actually it matter, doesn't matter at that all. much there are some movies where it's much more just about enjoying the ride yeah. than than really the actual plot 
Yeah. Like Big Lebowski, which came out a year later, is a similar kind of vibe where Mm -hmm. if you think too hard about what the movie's about, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's okay because you're having a great time. And Men in Black is like the epitome of just having a great time. It was, I think, one of the inspirations for us to do this podcast in the first place. It moves along. It's funny what action there is is you can follow it very easily and it's it's fun i'm really into action comedy really enjoy when directors find the fun in every action scene and that's on full display here it's very much about cleverness and problem solving getting your ass kicked but you keep fighting anyway without credits it's a it's 90 minutes basically it's perfect (laughs) it's an incredibly efficient movie it's also a movie that has a lot of cgi but most importantly it has a lot of practical effects a lot of the aliens are real puppets and animatronics that were designed for the film by legendary creature designer rick baker even the special effects that are there for being a mid-90s movie they hold up pretty well there's only a few shots that look kind of janky But overall, even with the handicap of it being the 90s, it's still, they look good. Even the bug at the end of the movie, when he's full bug and not in a Vincent D'Onofrio suit. Not in an Egger suit. Egger suit. (laughs) Looks pretty good. You know, it's not amazing, but I have genuinely seen much worse CGI. It it Much more recently. Yeah, that's truly, I would pit it against stuff that came out in the mid 2000s maybe even, even late 2012 2000s. or so like yeah definitely you forgive it because there's so little of that jankiness and they work within the limitations very well yeah the movie knows its limitations and understands how to how to work within those uh we'll also discuss the kind of big finale with the bug because we learned some interesting things about it when uh, we watched the blu-ray special features (laughs) yeah this is why physical media is great a lot of the other episodes of this podcast that we've done we've rewatched the movies on streaming you don't get any of the featurettes the commentary all the you know this some real great special features that kind of made certainly me love the art of filmmaking when I was growing up. You know, those Lord of the Rings extended edition DVDs. Formative. So formative because you saw these people who loved what they were doing and were so into the craft. We haven't had these looks into the filmmaking process with a lot of these movies in a way that we we got with the Men in Black Blu-ray. There was a golden age of you know, just stuffing as much extra shit into DVD and then Blu-ray menus as you could. And I think actually the Lord of the Rings supercharged that element. People loved all those special features. I certainly did. And anytime I got a DVD that didn't have any behind the scenes, it was sort of like, well, I've been ripped off. Yeah. This is... I've been cheated. Yeah, I demand a refund. I do miss that. For all the reasons we miss physical media today Mm -hmm. i think that one is maybe what i miss the most and speaking of physical media one of the reasons we didn't do this episode sooner is because originally men in black was on i believe hbo max and our plan was to watch it and then it vanished just disappeared into the ether as as things are wont to do these days something might be on netflix or hbo or hulu and then it's gone and it might be back in a month it might be back in a year you don't know and you don't know where it'll be. Nope. We kind of called an audible last time where Men in Black wasn't available, so we watched uh, Air Force One. Mm-hmm. 
uh, which you can go listen to that right now if you'd like. <laughs> it inspired me to actually just buy the Blu-ray, and now I own Men in Black, and I feel great about that. Yeah, it's it's a great purchase for when the world ends, but we can still use a, D, a, a Blu-ray player. Well, we can hook it up to the solar panels. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, you know, there is a comfort in, in owning physical media. Knowing that anytime you do want to watch a thing, it's there. You got it. You can just pop that bad boy yeah, in. Yeah, you and... can do, you know, you can do yourself a nice little volcano Men in Black. Um, Double feature, the baby. The feature and then follow it up with The Fugitive. Woo. What an afternoon. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, one of the great things about Men in Black is the chemistry between Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Instant chemistry too. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. They just have that perfect buddy cop dynamic mm-hmm. of the grizzled older veteran and the wild card rookie yeah. and they have to learn to respect each other. That's a classic formula mm-hmm. for a reason and they really nailed it here. They're the perfect combination. And what's really interesting to me is I think because the movie is so efficient because it's only because it's a tight 90, the respecting each other thing happens fairly it's a lot more subtle, I feel like, than in other movies like maybe Rush Hour or something. But you definitely, it it feels even more organic. I think it comes from a place of Tommy Lee Jones kind of discovering Will Smith. It is Kay who says we should bring have this, this guy kid, in. Yeah, bring this exactly. kid in and train him. He's clearly got talent and skill. You don't have that... Immediate antagonism. Yeah, a lot of buddy cop movies tend to have an antagonism where I don't need a partner yeah. or this damn kid doesn't know anything. Right. It's almost sort of a fatherly yeah. kind of role. While still having some of the friction there, it's just easier. It's yeah. just it's just more palatable, I think. And it, that doesn't mean that you can't have a good buddy cop dynamic where they do start out as, as very antagonistic. But this just feels so nice. <laughs> it is. It's nice. Like, Kay is showing Jay the ropes. And, and- Jay is kind of... He's a hotshot. He's kind of clueless, but he also has a nice core competence. He feels like he really knows what he's doing. Even when he fucks up. And he's quick to learn and improve, and it just feels natural. Even though he's thrust into this world and is discovering aliens for the first time, there's that sense of awe and wonder. Yeah. But there isn't a sense of, like, even though it's a fish out of water, he's not a clueless, bumbling Yeah, he's not a yokel or anything. He has swagger and confidence without it being this sort of overweening arrogance. And that's a fine line to walk. And like, I do hate that Will Smith is a Scientologist. Uh, That really fucking sucks. And I hope that he sees the light and breaks away at some point and puts a lot of money towards redressing the harms that that organization has done. But he's very good in this movie. You you do understand why he was so big in the 90s in particular my god he he was just a force you know his run in the 90s is astonishing independence day in 96 men in black in 97 enemy of the state in 98 oh we gotta add that to the list (laughs) wild wild west in 99 which yes kind of flopped but it existed and was a big movie i actually do want to cover enemy of the state at some point i watched that movie so many times as a kid and really loved it and i think it ended up being pretty prescient and also a ton of great character actors who ended up being kind of leading men in their own rights like jack black is in that movie yeah um But this isn't the Enemy of the State episode. This is the Men in Black episode. Yes, but so this natural chemistry that they have is really helped along by the story being so focused, too. We are with them almost all 
the time, except when we cut to Edgar and his story, and occasionally to the Ar- the Archelians. The only alien in Men in Black that is hostile to humanity is Edgar. And I think that's really important to the vibe of the movie overall. The bug is the problem. Everyone else is fine. Tommy Lee Jones even has a line at one point where he's just like, yeah, most of them are just trying to get through their day. They're just, you know, good people trying to make a living. And that sets the tone for like these are just people just trying to survive in new york city like the rest of us and that grounds it in this very empathetic relatable yes i did not know this until we watched the featurettes this is based on a marvel comic series this is part of the mcu it is part of the mcu and i'm a little it's interesting to me that disney has not attempted to bring them into the fold somehow there must be some weird like sony holds the rights in perpetuity or something so sony clearly still holds the rights sony was the production company behind men in black international oh we'll get to that which we will get to and we have thoughts so I'm I'm assuming that is why that hasn't happened. Sony has the rights to Spider-Man, and, and yet, yet. they botched it so badly that Marvel swooped in, and and we won't get into it now. But they botched the Men in Black reboot pretty hardcore. Yeah. So it would look. I'm no Marvel stan, but Sony fucked up international enough where i'd be curious to at least see what marvel would do no, with the franchise i disagree okay, I, that's let fair. it lie let Made it lie well, okay yes let it lie we don't need any more i'm just saying if they're going to do it again sure maybe don't have the same team behind that there's so many amazing people in this movie there's rip torn linda fiorentino who is the the coroner the medical examiner Uh, they're not the same um she is the medical examiner and she is fantastic in this movie and it's kind of a bummer that she kind of disappeared she ends up saving the day and i love that but it's done in such a way that it does not feel like a pandering girl boss moment it's simply like she was there and she had the opportunity like that's all you also had tony shalhoub popping up david cross is there for a hot minute you even have john grease who current uh, viewers out there might recognize from the white lotus on hbo dude okay so we're watching this movie and the character that John Grease plays is like the very beginning of the movie he's driving a van full of people who want to cross the Mexican border and Steve goes whoa is that the guy from the White Lotus after like two seconds so props to Steve for immediately recognizing that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, he in The White Lotus, he is the guy who is... He's being a fuckboy to Jennifer Coolidge, basically. It's great. And she <laughs> freaks out at him. <laughs> it's it's great. Uh, it's a good show if you haven't seen it. So John Grease was also probably better known as Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. Anyway, great character actor. Just part of a this nice stable of character actors who really give the movie a nice texture. This whole movie has an incredible texture to it. So, it, you know, you're in New York. Yes, it's the 90s. Yes, it's what did Giuliani is mayor. So you're getting, you know, the bad times are kind of being forcibly evicted, basically. Things are kind of on the up and up in New York, but it is still kind of gritty and grimy. And you really get a sense of that from the production design. They clearly shot in lower Manhattan and it looks great. You get a real sense of place with this movie. I loathe that 
oh, New York City's a character. But it does provide this really gorgeous texture. Well, and I think that's mostly due to the variety of character actors and different weirdos within this film. Um, Obviously, it actually being in New York helps a lot. Uh, and it gives it this real interesting, gritty kind of dirtiness to it that I think one of the things I really loved about this movie is how it feels like it's just a job. There's this matter of factness to particularly to Tommy Lee Jones's character where he says at one point like, oh, there's always some huge calamity. Like, yeah, there's there's always an Archelian battleship. There's always some other thing when Will Smith is really starting to freak out that they don't, you know, he's like, discharged his weapon in full view of the public which you are not supposed to do as a member of a very secretive like quasi-governmental agency that polices aliens this is very matter of fact this is like this is the 20th time tommy lee jones has had to do something like this he's not a superhero he's just a competent guy who's good at problem solving well and i also think part of the texture along with new york is in using these character actors beatrice as played by siobhan hogan egger's wife egger she reminds me very much of a Coen Brothers character. Yeah. I know I already mentioned The Big Lebowski, but I think there's a bigger connection here, which is that Barry Sonnenfeld, the director of Men in Black, was the main DP for the Coen Brothers in their early films. He did Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. One thing I think he might have learned from the Coens is the importance of filling out the cast. As good as Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones are, I think the movie would not have been what it is without this just wheelhouse of incredible just yeah. fun faces to look at. Yeah. People who look like people and who can harness that in a very funny way. Tony Shalhoub's Jeeves is a perfect example of just this low-level shit kicker who runs a pawn shop and he is only in the movie for like a scene. But oh my God, he you remember him immediately and not just because he gets his head blown off and it grows back, but he's just so gross. So much of this movie is gross. It just looks disgusting. People mm-hmm. are dripping. There's bugs everywhere. Like it's just nasty and I love it. You know, I'm always quick to heap praise on the Coen brothers, but I think actually they picked up something from Barry Sonnenfeld Mm. with him as their DP, and that is the use of the camera and the use of lenses. Barry Sonnenfeld very famously uses very wide lenses, really just whips the camera around, gets it right in people's faces. You see so much more of a of a person's emoting, like mm-hmm. so much of their facial expressions come out when you are zipping in on them with a 24 millimeter lens rather than some ultra long like 200 millimeter or something. Yeah. And the Coens now are pretty famous for continuing to use like 24, 28 millimeter lenses for most of their films, but I think that probably came from Sonnenfeld, mm-hmm. like, and Men in Black in particular really leans into that. If you go back and watch, like, Raising Arizona, that camera might even move more than Men in Black. Mm. Um, but I suspect that's only because Men in Black had to use more puppets and, yeah. and CGI and just didn't have that same freedom of movement. But even within those restrictions, the camera is just moving constantly and it gives the movie such a sense of energy. It gives it so much energy and it gives it so much momentum and it just keeps yeah, things it's so moving. kinetic. It's yeah. very, very kinetic. And what's funny is we start kind of slow uh, in a very good way. We, you know, this the scene of Tommy Lee Jones and his old partner in both senses of the word. This guy is pretty old and he's tired. He's pretty slow on the draw, but they're 
dealing with these quote-unquote illegal aliens, and one of them is a literal illegal alien who is violating a number of treaties by leaving the area he's supposed to remain in. Meanwhile, Tommy Lee Jones, like, has no patience for these fucking Border Patrol clowns, and, you know, is like, all these people want to do is just, like, live. Just, no, they're, they're coming in. They're coming into America eat shit basically we have bigger problems to deal with this isn't a real issue this is not a problem just fuck off man. uh and that is a great introduction to not only the world that we are about to enter but also the idea at the center of men in black which is that governmental agencies are clown cars basically they're just incompetent and focused on the wrong things. And, you know, this could kind of cut both ways because I think you could probably take sort of a weird libertarian or sort of private enterprise view of the world with this, where it is a private organization that is basically saving the planet. So, you know, it might not all be great, but the fact that they seem to pick on Border Patrol specifically (laughs) is very funny. They also pick on the NYPD. Yeah. Will Smith is actually good at his job. He chases down a cephalopoid on foot, which is the sort of reason that Tommy Lee Jones wants to recruit him for Men in Black. Will Smith is almost literally running circles around his his NYPD cohort. Yeah, his slow kind of pudgy... Sipowitz stand-in feels yeah. like. Yeah, Sipowitz without the sex appeal. Oh, boy. <laughs> Did you not find Sipowitz? Oh, uh... uh, you know, wasn't really... No, no into that teach their own i guess <laughs> my Podcast. mom was a big nypd blue fan so i watched a lot of that show oh, as a kid i yeah. was definitely not allowed anywhere near I the television shouldn't have been oh well so I, i'd kind of like to take a moment to talk about vincent d'onofrio's oh my character. god he plays the bug slash edgar edgar starts out as just this vaguely abusive shitty farmer in upstate New York who is berating his wife poor Beatrice poor Beatrice and then a ship crashes into his truck and destroys it and he goes out and is confronted by something in the crater that's been left behind and we get the famous scene of him being grabbed and sucked in and his skin being peeled off and then Edgar quote-unquote emerges from the crater and asks for sugar give me sugar in water. <laughs> it's not just because we just rewatched it that we have that, not just the line, but the intonation down by memory. Like, I, that seared itself into my brain the first time I saw the movie. Edgar, your skin is hanging off your bones. It's just, it's so perfect. The two of them, really. So I believe it was Vulture. Oh, you're on it right now. Yeah, Vulture sort of had a oral history of, of the character. We'll link to that in the show notes because yeah, it's, it's great. It's actually, it's a really good article. I remember reading it when it came out a couple of years ago, and I think it made me rewatch Men in Black at the time. D'Onofrio probably should have won a, an Oscar. A truly That's not like hyperbole or a joke. His performance is so, so good. Not only is it good, but the way he progresses and sort of decomposes throughout the course of the film and how his mannerisms get increasingly bug-like and gross, he just has such a command of his body in this movie where he really feels like a giant bug squeezing into an Egger suit. So... D'Onofrio says that he combined two voices, George C. Scott and John Huston, which is a really 
oh, really interesting thing. I can hear the John Huston. Yeah. And so as actors who are doing voices tend to land on like a sort of key phrase, I, I think is, is one of the tricks. And so for him, it was like pond scum. The way that Sonnenfeld directed D'Onofrio or didn't in certain cases, like, you know, sometimes you take a little more of a hands-off approach and trust your actor. Every moment that he is on screen is a delight. It's compelling. It's, it's so compelling. compelling and gross he, and he's watchable. so gross. That's what's so interesting about why it's like what what does it say about me, I guess, that I find disgusting, nasty Vincent D'Onofrio so watchable. Some people just have it. At some point we'll discuss Jurassic World whenever we do our Jurassic Park episode. But D'Onofrio is the villain in Jurassic World, and he is, by a pretty wide margin, the best part of an otherwise pretty bad movie. He's the only recognizably human character in that movie, I feel like. He's also funny in a way that feels very intentional. Mm -hmm. Like, he understands his character, that he's a buffoon and a fool, and credit to D'Onofrio for just making everything he's in better. It's a shame they couldn't bring him back for any of the sequels. Yeah. I don't know if our listeners remember when Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith go into... They go to see Beatrice because trying to track down the bug and Beatrice gives them lemonade and Will Smith spits it out because there's no sugar in it because Edgar ate all the sugar. I did not put that together until reading the the vulture thing. Oh yeah, I think I only put it together when I read the vulture thing for the first time. We talk a lot about just good screenwriting and this is no exception where the first time we really get a full scene of Edgar after he puts on the skin suit is when he's confronting a pest exterminator in his barn and the exterminator's killing cockroaches yeah. and he basically says like don't do that and then kills the exterminator and pretty gruesomely a, a, he stuffs the the bug guy's bug wand, wand down yeah. his throat it's just oh my god but that pays off later that's how will smith ends up saving the day is killing cockroaches mm-hmm. to get the bug to stay on the planet and what's fun too is that technically this is a movie where the stakes are as high as any marvel movie where the world is at stake it's gonna blow up and yet it feels very intimate and small Mm -hmm. and localized contained Contained. yeah it's so contained part of that is the just the focus we don't leave new york we you know we go to jersey oh true we do go to jersey we go to jersey we go to upstate for you know one scene each basically uh when we're following tommy lee jones and will smith we go to queens we don't even get to brooklyn though and we're also very focused on the present there's no like we don't really know anything about jay before we meet him chasing down this cephalopoid other than you know kind of a who's canon nypd guy the only thing we really learn about K and his past is in 1962 when MIB was founded he was just a guy on a way to a date and he never made it to the date because there were aliens and he he met you know first contact and so you have that explained via a photograph and via Tommy Lee Jones peeping on the woman a little creepy he was supposed to go meet who never married but that's it that's it and it's enough it gives you an idea of who these people are without having to like delve into every single detail of their lives. Right. And it's it's very efficient. It gives you all the info you need. And then we're off and running with the plot. I mean, the humor in 
general is is very good. I mean, there's a lot of physical comedy, like Jeebs's head uh, coming growing back. That's a hilarious moment. Will Smith firing the noisy cricket, <laughs> where it's this tiny little gun, but then it ends up blasting him across the block. That's very funny, even while still being sort of a plot point almost like it don't, is, yeah you know it's it's a moment of like don't fire your gun in and that's the craft of the script in the movie is so good and what works about the comedy in particular is that no one is acting like they are in a comedy and i think that's the key to all good comedies is the characters don't know they're in a comedy well, it's the airplane rule. The movie Airplane. Yeah. They, the direction that was given was say it straight, play it straight. Mm-hmm. Everything is very matter of fact, very straightforward. Don't play for laughs. Don't play like it's in front of a sitcom audience. Mm-hmm. This is deadly serious. And I think the matter of factness and the seriousness of the absurdity, you know, of like this sort of TSA <laughs> building where all these aliens are. Yeah. And all these absurd things happening. The little guys pouring the coffee. Oh, my! Uh, the worms. The worms. They're oh, so good. They're so funny. They were a huge part of the Men in Black uh, animated series. And rightly so. Uh, but like having that seriousness in this kind of situation, I mean, that's just good comedy. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And it's, it is interesting because so apparently the story and the script were changing quite a bit while they were filming and even in post-production. That was the most illuminating part of these behind-the-scenes featurettes was just how much they changed the film from... Yeah. The script was originally spread out across the country. Yeah, sort of a little more of just an x files type thing. Where they're kind of going all over the place. They're going to Kansas and to Vegas Area and, 51 and yeah. Roswell and Vegas. And it was, I believe, Sonnenfeld who decided to keep things pretty in New much York. everything in New York and that was a good call that doesn't mean it would have been a bad movie if it had been all over the country you could have pulled some regional humor from sure all of those that just areas. feels more like a tv show to me yeah possibly because that's just what the x-files is <laughs> right that's the thing it's like this is just a slightly funnier x-files really having it in New York gave it that sense of place and allowed the strangeness of the characters it just gave them such a good home base yeah because it's really grounded yeah that's something that people think of when they think of New York like all, all the, the weirdos all the weirdos interestingly even in post-production they were changing some pretty big elements yeah, of they the cut script. an entire race race and an entire alien Alien Nation. Yeah. Uh, originally, the super tall guy and the super short guy are enemies. Basically, they're diplomats of warring nations. Which does explain the casting, why one is so tall and yeah. short. And I don't know if that would have ruined the movie to have had that original plot line play out, right. but it would have added a level of complexity that wasn't really simply needed. don't need yeah they actually show some line readings from sort of what was originally shot mm-hmm. before it was changed in post and it does feel a little more awkward and clunky yeah they're really just trying to exposition their way through this <laughs> yeah. thing whereas in the final version it's very quick and the archelians are gonna hit the earth with a laser and kill everybody and that's all you need to know yeah it helps with that sort of grounded simplicity yeah. that the movie has. And it's interesting to know that that was not necessarily the case yeah. to begin with. It wasn't that simple. It was kind of overly complex at points. Another interesting change that both makes a lot of sense and is also very disappointing is that originally Rick Baker had built an entire bug, bug like uh, the cockroach mm-hmm. that we see at the end, was an actual puppet animatronic, animatronic type. Uh, <laughs> 
Real, it was a whole thing. A real thing. Yeah. Um, and I think that would have been super cool to see. Mm-hmm. With that being said, in this featurette, they talk about how he kind of monologues his way through the final mm-hmm. scene. Basically. Through the big climax of the movie, he's just sort of doing this long speech. Because those animatronics and puppets and suits, you cannot move much with them. He has to monologue. It's That's very kind difficult. of it. You even see that as much as I love aliens the movie yeah the final queen xenomorph yeah you can tell they're working with a pretty limited range of motion yeah Yeah. and i think that would have been very similar here and it might have even been a little bit boring so them ending up with this fully cgi creature and this much more action-oriented climax it's disappointing to not see that rick baker creation but with that being said i think it was the right choice and what's interesting is they clearly still had enough time to build this creature the right way and make it look pretty convincing. I really think the jankiness is entirely due to the limitations of the computing power. Oh, yeah. Not to the design or how it's animated or how it moves. It feels like it has weight and physics, like it walks around like a real It does. It actually, again, and this is why it holds up as well as it does. And like kudos to the ILM folks who, who worked on this because it was apparently... A horrifyingly labor-intensive process. Sonnenfeld was talking about how there was one shot that took eight months of back and forth because Sonnenfeld wanted the bug to, like, punch Will Smith, and ILM was like, no, we can't. That doesn't really work with the physics. And he was like, well, fucking do it. And that might be a bit extreme for (laughs) for him to have done that, but I think it does speak to the nature of filmmaking now where the artistry at work is not inherently worse today than it was then. It's just that the artists aren't given enough time. I don't think there's any situation, even in the biggest budget movies, where you have eight months to debate a shot. No, oh my God. No, you have to get it done in six weeks. We're pushing this thing out the door and, and we need this. This was a scene with one CGI creature. And like, yes, it's a big ask. It's a big task. It's a big bug. But it is one element. Whereas in these movies these days, it's the entire movie. It's the entire. Yeah. It's an actor or a couple actors interacting with an entirely CGI environment rather than the reverse where it's one CGI element interacting with an entirely real environment that mixed with no time where yes your computer can render the effects much more quickly than it could in 1997 but you have way more effects and you don't have enough time to build a good looking effect yeah and that i think is the problem like cgi is not inherently bad it's just a tool but it's a tool that is just abused to no end i know that in filmmaking the more you can control your environment the better and cgi is the ultimate control but that also removes all of the visual visual joy and texture from the movie going experience. I also disagree with that, that the more you control your environment, the better. I think for certain filmmakers, that can be true. Hitchcock was famously very controlling yeah. of his environments, but Cronenberg in particular has a tendency to go out and just kind of make it up on the day, depending <sighs> on, on the location. Yeah. And that can 
provide exciting new moments that you would never yeah. have thought of on your own that pop up organically that you can then integrate into your film and into the story it's not to say it always works sometimes mm. it is a mess i've been on sets where they didn't have much yeah. control and it's a disaster yeah. but if you are a skilled director and you have a skilled cast and crew then having everything on a blue screen where you're going to build your bar set after the fact yeah. it just removes that texture and it removes the spontaneity and it just makes everything feel flat and lifeless the flat Flatness is devastating (laughs) to the movie experience. Like, so, you know, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith at one point are sitting in like a Chinese restaurant and it looks like a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. And it was probably a set, but like, you know, the set dresser did an incredible job in all of these grimy lower Manhattan locations. Like Jeeb's pawn shop is so good. The The, Archillian, the the diner shop, the diner, the diner is this, those pierogies look so good it's clearly a ukrainian diner type place like on the lower east side sort of veselka-esque and i think this is a good springboard into our comparison corner this week it's back baby comparison corner is back took a week off with air force one because there was never an air force two which damn it that would have been a great title oh my god right right it would have been about the vice (laughs) president no one would have cared see they should have started with air force two and then the sequel should have been air force one build gotta build the stakes (laughs) for comparison corner we had a couple of choices we could have done the sequels but we chose instead to go with men in black international oh boy which was sort of a soft reboot slash revival revival, whatever uh, that came out in 2019 and was universally panned and flopped hard at the box office now i remember when this came out and being like wow this all seems a little harsh it's chris hemsworth and tessa thompson and emma thompson is in it and liam neeson is in it how could it possibly be this bad like Thor Ragnarok was a lovely romp these two clearly have chemistry I thought that it was improbable that it was as bad as people were saying folks I was wrong (laughs) I also kind of went into it I'd read the reviews I expected to not have a great time to but I kind of assumed I'd just be a little bored and it's so much worse than that I had a genuinely bad time I so I was mostly I was mostly just bored Uh, I got kind of annoyed and mad about a few things but I wish I had taken video of Steve's face that we could add to this somehow because I looked over at him and I've never seen him this miserable in the entire time I've known him it was just abject fucking misery on his face so I was thinking about it afterwards and we've done comparison corner a few times now and pretty much across the board the reboots (laughs) revivals whatever you want to call them, have been pretty bad. Mm-hmm. We've had Total oh, the, Recall yep. 2012 and The Mummy, the Mummy 2017. And those are both very bad movies. But they didn't quite strike the same nerve with me of being just... It was as though the movie was made specifically to piss me off. <laughs> Where, I don't know, like The Mummy 2017 is a fucking mess and it doesn't know what it is and it's... It's just kind of a disaster through and through. But there's almost something charming about the total ineptitude of, of oh, the whole I, endeavor. Mm, I think I, I feel the way about The Mummy 2017 that you feel about Men in Black International. I think, I think that's the level that we're both at. I wonder if that has to do with our own individual attachments to these movies from our youth. It's possible. You loved 
The, the Mummy. I, I mean, I really enjoyed The Mummy, but I only saw it a few times. I didn't oh, yeah. have that same connection to it. Whereas Men in Black, I saw it maybe two dozen times. Mm-hmm. Got it on VHS and just watched it oh, over yeah. and over. So I just, I guess that might have something to do with it. I think because The Mummy 2017 and Total Recall 2012 were actual remakes, this is a continuation, let's call it a spinoff. So you're not comparing it to the original, but it is like an opportunity to recapture the same kind of magic that the first one did. And it absolutely doesn't. Does it feel like just more of a wasted opportunity? I think that's part of it. There are so many good elements in this movie. Mm. Tessa Thompson and... Chris Hemsworth, are they're good actors. They have had chemistry together in the past. I think what was so baffling about International is that it made Tessa Thompson boring. Unforgivable. And it made Chris Hemsworth unlikable. That is no small feat for Mm -hmm. either of them. They are both deeply charming, interesting, watchable actors and this is a great opportunity it's a great source material if you must have sort of a shared universe there is a lot to explore with men in black it opens itself up to so many opportunities and so for them to have biffed it so hard not only are they unlikable and boring they're kind of just mean and yeah there's no sincerity there's no sincerity this is actually the perfect example we've talked about whedonism in the past yeah whedonism is another thing like cgi where it is not necessarily bad all the time but it gets so wildly overused and i don't think i've seen a movie including joss whedon movies That has leaned into Whedon cadence like Men in Black International did. And it was that thing of like saying something in a funny way as a replacement for actually saying jokes. Yeah. No jokes. Even the physical humor mostly lands flat. Literally. There's no physical comedy. There's no chemistry between the two uh, leads. Well, because their characters are borderline non-existent there neither of them seems to have an actual character arc i have no idea who tessa thompson's character is actually supposed to be what is her character i guess like a little more straight laced than chris hemsworth's kind of wild card so chris hemsworth's character is sort of this wild card womanizing playboy kind of he's a james bond with aliens kind he's, of he's a rogue yeah. you know, a rakish rogue supposedly <laughs> but he's not charming in the way that he should no. be to pull that off and he doesn't stop doing that or learn the error of his ways or become a better person like nothing really actually happens and speaking of before we move on from the whedonism stuff the reason there's so much of this whedon cadence is because there was no script we both determined yeah. that they were improvising like 90% of the script. It, it feels very, very, very much like an outline. And they just went in on the day and were like, okay, Tessa, Chris, here's where you need to be by the end of the scene. Here's like a couple things you need to get in there. Go. We'll stitch together and post. So you get these weird back and forths where it doesn't seem like anyone really knows quite what to say. So and they just give sort of a sarcastic like, well, well that just happened kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, it's a snarky tone and nothing really is conveyed in a, in a meaningful way. Like, so, you know, Men in Black, the original, there's this lovely scene where... Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith are sitting uh, in Battery Park and Will Smith is like, why all the secrecy? Like, why are you guys so secretive about aliens? People are smart. And Tommy Lee Jones goes, 
a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. And like, that's another line that just stuck with me. Like that, after the first time I saw it at like, you know, 11 years old, there's not a single line of dialogue like that in the entire international edition. Nobody has any sort of defining characteristic that is stated through a line. Like, I would say that defines Tommy Lee Jones's character, mm-hmm. is that one line. Yeah. It also, he softens throughout the course of the film. Yeah. Yes, it's creepy that he peeping Tom's on his not wife, but it shows that there is a softer side to him. Character building. Character building. Yeah, neither of them really get any character building in International. And moreover, the pacing is bizarrely inconsistent, where we would go through several scenes where we didn't get a chance to breathe, and they were over in 30 seconds. And by the time you even thought about what just happened, we were midway through the next weird sequence. But then it sort of switched, and scenes became inter terminable where they would go on for what felt like 15 minutes i'm sure it was shorter but it just (laughs) wouldn't stop there is a whole sequence it's like two scenes i guess of tessa thompson and chris hemsworth uh, in the desert and they have an annoying sidekick now and it it really sucks voiced by kumail nanjani and it's just a huge mistake disney was not the studio for this and yet it feels like a disney note where we must give them a talking quote-unquote cute little sidekick it's this teeny tiny little alien guard guy whose queen is murdered by two of the aliens well that whole scene where they discover him and he's threatening to kind of commit seppuku yeah uh, because he failed his queen and there's this weird back and forth where they're kind of trying to convince him not to but they seem kind of like they don't give a shit right and And he doesn't actually want to kill himself but he's threatening to do it and the tone is so what are we doing here what are we doing they just met him so i get why they don't care but also why are they being so callous about this like why is everyone being so shitty to each other right off the bat yeah where's Uh, the kindness or the gruffness like you know tommy lee jones doesn't treat frank the pug very well he sure doesn't but it's charming it's very funny (laughs) nevertheless well because you get this sense of a shared history like he he and frank know each other you know this isn't the first time he's shaken frank down (laughs) literally that poor dog i hope that dog was okay i know he did seem a little rough with the actual dog but like that's kind of the thing is like the original sprinkles all these great characters in but it also doesn't overdo it like frank the pug is only there for one scene and then he's gone and that's for the best if he was i think actually in the sequel he does play a much he does yeah and you know just having him there is like it gives you a sense of the world it builds up this world but it doesn't overstay its welcome and maybe maybe if Kumail's little alien guy whose name I don't even know. If he had popped up for a scene to provide some context about how they could stop guess, whatever thing yeah. they were trying to stop, maybe that would have been okay. But, they, but he sticks around for the rest of the goddamn like, movie. And it's like he saves Tessa Thompson. He yeah. like, plays a vital role and it sucks deeply. The reason the original Men in Black is able to sort of sprinkle these little side characters in that are so memorable is it's fundamentally a mystery. It's It's kind of a detective story. Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith are trying to find the bug for a big chunk of the movie. They are seeking information and they are going to sources of information. Whereas Men in Black International is 
basically trying to be a James Bond movie. We're globe hopping. I don't really know. I don't know what the fucking story of this movie really was. It was just so... The original, you know, the galaxy is kind of a MacGuffin in the original. And oh, yeah, sure. This also has a very similar MacGuffin of this sort of world-ending weapon. Weapon? that the hive wants to get. The hive is this alien species that takes over, sort of like the Borg, where it takes over other species and assimilates them. And again, this is a situation where I am not fundamentally against the concept of men in black globe hopping and trying to stop this big threat and having to do another mystery where they have to figure out where this weapon is and they have to talk to all these aliens and all these different parts of the world i think there's something you can do with that but this movie just it doesn't have any sense of place like a big chunk of it takes place in london we see like one block of london that I think was probably just a blue screen. I'm sure, yeah. Uh, maybe some basic set design, but it didn't feel like real London. It didn't feel like real Marrakesh when they go there. No. Then they're just kind of out in the desert, which is very clearly bad green screen. <laughs> uh, they have this sunset that looks fake as shit. <laughs> uh, and it, it just never gives you a sense of anywhere. We don't spend any time in New York, but we don't really get to know anywhere else either. Well, in the end, they do this unforgivable thing. Bizarre. Tessa Thompson is basically like brute forces her way into Men in Black. Yeah, she sneaks in and then they're like, I guess she's an agent Okay, now. I guess. Because she hacked into the Hubble telescope, I guess. We're, we're not really given a sense of Tessa Thompson's skills. She met an alien when she was a child and helped it escape through her window. And that was how she knew the Men in Black and aliens existed. Clearly, they're trying to sell how smart she is. She interviews at the FBI and the CIA. But she also is a fucking idiot because she's just talking to them about how she wants to work in the alien in the division. alien division. So like, and they're all understandably just like, like what? You're crazy. Weirdo. Yeah, that is kind of one of the huge problems of this movie. In the original, Will Smith is chasing down a guy that is very fast, very strong. You know, so he has a set of skills that we see, and we see through the testing process, too. When a wonderful could, testing montage. It's so good, and so it's funny. so funny, and it, it really gives you a sense, though, that, like, Jay is worthy of this. Whereas all Tessa Thompson does is know a guy's password. We see through this weird, obviously done in post-production, screen that uh, Emma Thompson looks at. Where she just like her test scores are very high, and we see week one test scores high, week two test scores high, and then she's in. That's it's it. Just she Emma Thompson's character runs the New York office, taking over for Rip Torn, and presses a button that says "accepted," and then we segue into this fucking music video. Basically, if you want to know the differences between the two films, but you don't want to take the time to actually watch International, which I recommend you do not. Yeah, don't bother. All you have to do is find the montages of Will Smith and Tessa Thompson's characters putting on mm-hmm. the suit after they've been accepted into the Men in Black and just look at the difference in the quality of filmmaking between those two montages. The international one, it looks like a music video, but not even a well-edited music video. Yeah. And what's weird is the director, F. Gary Gray, has done a lot of good stuff. Including music videos. Including a lot of music videos. That's kind of where he got his start. And so it's really baffling to see this film because he is better than this. We've seen him do better work. I will give it this. It has color. It's well lit. <laughs> it's well lit. Um, really damning with faint praise. Like, oh, you you lit it. <laughs> well, I mean, there's color, which is... Yeah. The action is actually generally pretty easy to follow. But the truly unforgivable thing that they 
do and is and was for me the moment where I was like oh we're we're in for a really really bad time Tessa Thompson gets into the men in black and they send her to the London office for training and so she goes into this subway station that is clearly only for MIB no regular people are on this platform it's full of fucking aliens who look like aliens and there's a screening process where you are scanned to make sure that you have the appropriate credentials yeah into the station pulls what looks like a fucking c train from the 70s so she gets in and then the train transforms the inside and outside of the train transform into this into you know space whatever futuristic space pod and it goes to London. London. When it arrives in London at the station where once again it is only MIB personnel and aliens, not mutually exclusive, I suppose. It doesn't transform into the tube or anything. There is no camouflage. There's no disguise. So what the fuck was the purpose of having it look like a goddamn subway train. It's for the audience. That's it. And I hate shit like that. Why would you do that? The moment that really sold for me on this being a very bad time was the introduction of Chris Hemsworth to Tessa Thompson. Oh my God. When they meet for the first, they don't even meet. She just sees him across the room. And the entirety of the scene is just her and this other British alien lady both noting how hot Chris Hemsworth is. And that alone wouldn't be so bad, except the movie does this thing where the alien is able to physically control time? Chris Hemsworth, either him alone or all of time, where she does this weird forward and reverse thing to like slow it down. And I don't know if this is was supposed to be some sort of commentary, like flipping the male gaze to be the female gaze, but it's just such a weird, awkward moment where it doesn't really come up again. There's no real there sexual no- tension or chemistry between the two of them after that this could have been a horny movie it could have been easily and it's not it is emphatically unhorny they don't kiss at the end there's no actual sexual tension it and like we know they can have sexual tension there is an actual sexual tension between them and thor ragnarok what happened here it's baffling so not only is that scene baffling because it raises all these questions of like wait can that alien control time like that's a big yeah that's holy shit hmm. but also to have that be sort of the meet cute between them where you could have treated it like oh chris hemsworth is this big hero agent that everyone wants to work with yeah tessa thompson has to figure out her way into being his partner yeah that doesn't really It doesn't happen. happen. It doesn't happen. You could have this really interesting thing where like, let's pretend that Tessa Thompson actually hacked into MIB and read MIB files. And one of them was on this supposed incident where Chris Hemsworth and Liam Neeson are the heroes. They beat the hive armed only with their wits and whatever weapon. They repeat this fucking line like 800 million times oh my god yeah and i know that Oof. there's a reason for that but it's still it's still really fucking annoying so you have tessa thompson hack into mib and because she hacks into mib they're like oh well let's pull her into our world and you know tessa thompson does not have any attachments to our world so she doesn't give anything up to enter mib she's like 
specifically says like i'm so desperate i i have formed no attachments i have known nothing and it's like well that fucking sucks as a starting point for a character so it speaks to a this sort of weird meta textuality that comes with these remakes where they feel they have to comment on the past films in some way so it's as though tessa thompson's character has actually watched the original men in black Mm -hmm. where she already knows that she can't have any attachments she's already aware vaguely of the men in black and spends her her life trying to track them down and trying to find aliens and all this and the problem is that she gets in and there's never a moment of awe and wonder and you need that to sell to the audience like the character is there to project the the awe that you are meant to Mm -hmm. feel that's why spielberg face as a concept (laughs) is so powerful and why it continues to work yeah it's a similar problem with Jurassic World, where everyone's bored of dinosaurs, so the audience is never excited about right. the dinosaurs. Same, same problem here. Everyone's bored of aliens, so the audience is bored of aliens. Yeah. In the first one, Tommy Lee Jones is bored of aliens, but you have Will, Will Smith, Smith as your audience surrogate saying, holy shit, what? look at all these crazy oh aliens. Oh my god. And that works. You need that. And this movie... It doesn't work. None of this actually works. Like, again, if you had this dynamic where Tessa Thompson wants to be Chris Hemsworth's partner because she has seen the files on this big heroic thing that he and Liam Neeson did, and you have... Chris Hemsworth, who has kind of gotten a bit big for his britches about this moment. Like, you don't get that sense from the movie that he is too big for his britches only because of this moment. It would make for a much stronger movie if there's some sort of fight, action sequence, whatever, in the middle of the second act where it is revealed that this is a lie. Because it is revealed that it's a lie, you know, almost at the very end of the movie, and it doesn't seem to fucking matter to him all that much. It's just like a very brief, what? Well, there's also a very strange choice where it is revealed that Liam Neeson is the bad guy. Uh, He's been assimilated by the Hive and has been hiding out as the leader of MIB London. I feel like I keep saying this, but like, that's not a bad idea for a twist. No. (laughs) But... The way the movie goes about it is just bizarre, where everyone just kind of figures it out on their own. Yeah. Where they they meet, and like Chris Hemsworth's antagonist, the guy from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, kind of says to Chris Hemsworth, like, oh my god, he, it's Liam Neeson, and... Meanwhile, Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are like, yeah, it's Liam Neeson. And they just kind of say it, and then that's that. And then that's it. (laughs) So you don't get the big shocking reveal. You don't get like a great heel turn from Neeson turning to them with an evil look and being like, actually, Ah, it's been me this whole time. Like, you know, or like he just starts transforming into the squid. Yeah, another another weird thing is deeply disappointing creature design. There's this one scene where Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth are babysitting. He's like a member of some alien royal family and they take him to a club. The alien does not disguise himself as a human being and like a lot of the joy of men in black the original is seeing how the aliens disguise themselves as humans you have one who crouches and holds up a metal pole with like a very realistic animatronic head you have egger in his egger suit you have one of the Archelian guys. He's a little tiny green man inside a human. human suit. You press a button on his head and the face opens up and it's just cool design. And there's nothing like that in Men in Black International. Everyone you know, just has... Stock CG. There's a pair of 
twin aliens that look like a nebula kind of they don't really do anything with it. Well, they're sort of set up as the main bad guys, these twin aliens who are sort of like the twins from The Matrix Reloaded, except not pasty white. They're set up as the evil guys, but then it turns out, oh, twist, they were actually just trying to But then to we never themselves. come back to we that. We never come back to that. And they're also just this generic sort of pixel cloud that they turn into. Yeah, and their powers are such that, you know, most of the aliens in Men in Black don't have, like, power powers. powers. They just kind of exist yeah. and... Run pawn shop. Yeah, like, you know, the most that Jeebs can do is grow his own head back, which is useful, it turns out. Not really really a power. No. You know, there's a squid lady. Will Smith delivers the squid lady's baby, but that's not a power. No, that's just who she is. That's who she is. They have these powers that seem to be whatever the script needs them Mm -hmm. to be in the moment. They can, I guess, manipulate matter to do things. Things. And then they're just killed. They're just gone, yeah. And that's it until the hive at the end. And again, just sort of a vague squid guy, but not in a fun, like, the squid lady in the first one. You don't even see her as a squid. You just see her, like, one of her tentacles wrap the around tentacles. Will Smith and bang him on the car and pull him in. And it's funny. And it's in the distance, too. Well, and it's also a wonderful example of they needed to get a bunch of exposition across. So you have Tommy Lee Jones talking to the husband outside the car. And in the background, you have Will Smith getting banged around by the squid arms. So it's this great mixture of we're getting exposition across but we're going to hide that with this yeah. physical comedy, and it works. Mm-hmm. You get enough of the information that you need, but you're mostly watching Will Smith as he's getting thrown around. Yeah. That's the magic of that movie. It understands how to just be entertaining, and right? that sounds like such a low bar to clear, and yet, <laughs> and yet more and more, are. that is not being cleared. Like There's no moment even close to that in, in international. No, you're just tired all the time. And it's also a really boring climactic fight. Uh, it takes place at the Eiffel Tower, but it happens inside the Eiffel yeah. Tower in this nondescript room. It almost looked like Jekyll's study from the fucking Mummy 2017. Yeah, sort of steampunkish, and maybe that is what the inside of it looks like, but who cares? I'll never know. Who cares? Fuck the French. It's just such a bland climax to an already bland movie. Everything is just grating and the snarkiness is so exhausting. Nobody seems to like each other. Mm-mm. There's no sense of interpersonal relationships other than Hemsworth and uh, Fallen Kingdom guy <laughs> not liking each other. And I think Fallen Kingdom guy was actually my favorite character in the movie. Yeah, he's he was the only like character. Yeah. He felt like an actual person who like existed outside of the scenes that he was in honestly you know he's very much a type he's that little shit eater that that you fucking hate in your office yeah so you could have this fun little c plot i guess where chris hemsworth and <laughs> the fallen kingdom man learn to sort of work together but it just doesn't materialize really until the very very end because they they're never supporting each other until the reveal that Liam Neeson is the bad guy you don't get them actually working together it's kind of a similar thing with Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth like they there's no real development of that relationship in a way that makes actual sense like where did we start and where are we going it takes them a long time to finally meet and pair up in yeah within the film but also 
there's never any sort of conflict about, you know, you could have done the old formula of, oh, I don't need a partner and he learns to yeah. have a partner or simply the grizzled veteran and the new rookie and he's shown her the ropes. It's unclear like how we're supposed to feel about them as partners, about them yeah. working together. There's no real conflict for them to overcome other no. than they're just kind of snotty to snotty. each other. There's some banter about driving. Yes. Yeah, oh, oh, well, all right. So let's talk about that. <laughs> Look. You can't blame the filmmakers for studios forcing product placement into their movies. And product placement certainly isn't a new thing. God, no. It's been going on for years. The Reese's Pieces in E.T. for Christ's sake. Oh, my God, yeah. I'm not going to dock a film for having product placement. That's just how the world works. But International's product placement is not only egregious and really ham-fisted it's the literal end of the movie it is the final shot of the movie is an ad for a fucking lexus a lexus of all fucking things and that's what's honestly so funny it's not actually funny but you have to laugh where there's a scene they need a car and they go and one of the cars is a is like blown up and then there's a car under a cover yeah like it's being revealed at the new york auto show truly and it's this gleaming black Lexus sedan. sedan? It's the car your your mother-in-law bought <laughs> after she retired. No joke, my grandma like yeah. has always been in love with Lexuses. Yeah, that old is... <laughs> people buy Lexuses. And it's just it's treated as this like Ooh. Ooh, and it turns and then the, the movie turns into a fucking car commercial for a, a little while and then okay we get past the car commercial cool but then the final scene instead of any like actual culmination in their relationship with Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth she is in his car and she's driving and she's driving because she's a girl boss now yeah and so she's gonna drive the car and the car becomes a, a jet a or, whatever, or whatever spaceship and it flies up and zips around the Eiffel Tower and then flies towards the camera and we cut to black so it's sort of reminiscent of like the Back to the Future ending except it's not a DeLorean it's a fucking Lexus sedan that you take to Whole Foods <laughs> you take it to your lunch at the club <laughs> it's it's just <laughs> the country club yeah I, you know there was a point where I wanted to do like a YouTube supercut of really awkward product placement uh, <laughs> and I thought of it when I was watching a fringe episode that oh no really had yeah. this awful I think it was like for a Ford yes I remember that um, and it's really awkward and uncomfortable and you just feel bad for everyone you involved. do and especially I remember talking to I don't think it was like anyone involved in the episode but like a colleague of mine when I was working at TV Guide had spoken with them they had to do that so that the show could continue Continue to exist and it's just such a bummer and most most producers and writers and directors are game because they would rather make a thing than not have the money to make the thing no one is under any any illusions here but it is a bummer to see it so naked and at the cost of the narrative right yeah like the fringe thing was awkward and uncomfortable but you did feel kind of bad because you knew that it was a studio mandated you either do this or you don't have a show and i'm sorry but men in black is still a you big had the franchise. budget you had the budget like what the fuck are you doing tencent was a co-producer on this right. on this fucking movie there was plenty of money and again I'm not blaming the filmmakers for having product placement. I talked earlier about Jurassic World. Jurassic World is sort of famous or infamous for (laughs) its product placement, and there's a lot of it. The most egregious is probably Claire's character driving this gleaming Mercedes-Benz. This gleaming white Mercedes. Through through the the jungle. jungle. 
and it's pretty awkward and dumb but you know what doesn't happen there at no point does anybody like whistle and say like ooh nice when she pulls up in her Mercedes you get shots of the car it looks a little bit like a commercial Mm -hmm. but there's no actual commentary whereas I think twice you have Kumail who is this little tiny alien why does he give a shit about About cars what are you talking Ah! about so Kumail's little alien guy whistles and is like, ooh, fancy. And then at the end, when Tessa is sitting in the driver's seat, that's another just like, ooh, I'm driving the fun, fancy car. It's gross, man. Like, it's so it just, lame. It just sucks because there are so many other things you could have done with this moment, with this final moment of the fucking movie. And instead, it's just by Alexis. Uh. It's awful. <laughs> so that's our review of Men in Black International. I... <laughs> I genuinely can't think of a time I've been more upset while watching a movie. There's just something hit me hard. I've seen some real dogs in the last (laughs) few years. Wonder Woman 84 being a prime example of a movie that is just a colossally baffling train wreck. But if you gave me the choice right now, I had to watch Wonder Woman 84 or Men in Black International, I would actually watch Wonder Woman 84. I would walk into the Pacific Ocean, I think. I mean, if that's an uh, option, then well, yes, Well, sure, of course. of course. Yeah, just huge, huge misfires where, once again, I think Wonder Woman 84 also felt like they just had a fucking outline. Yeah. <laughs> they went into every scene and were like, okay, gal, despite being a non-native speaker of English, let's just have her improvise against Kristen Wiig. Look, if you're not Christopher Guest, don't ask your talent to improvise david wayne can do it too fine i'm not gonna explain why you should have actual scripts dialogue if you don't know that then maybe filmmaking is not for you (laughs) and again you know if you've got eugene levy and Catherine o'hara then fine improvise but you don't so don't do that don't do that the original men in black they had a script and it was very good i was able to quote a lot of the dialogue. There's nothing about Men in Black International that I will remember outside of Kumail wolf whistling in a fucking Lexus. I wish I could expunge it from my memory. I'm a little concerned that I will remember too much from that movie just because it like burned sort of a hate hole in my brain. <laughs> You've got like CTE lesions from from the Men in Black International. I really thought I'd just be bored. Uh, and I suppose kudos to Men in Black International for inspiring such vitriol. Yeah. I, I didn't expect that. I remember watching the trailer for the 2017 Mummy and being like, oh boy, that doesn't look good. The trailer for Men in Black International, I remember thinking like, hmm, all right, mm. maybe, maybe. And then, yeah, I really can't stress enough how much you should not ever watch that goddamn movie. Well, I think that about sums it up. Men in Black is great. Rick Baker's character designs are wonderful. Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith are incredible. The supporting cast is just a delight. It's a movie that fires on all cylinders. There's really no part of it that drags. Even the 97 CGI looks pretty good. This is a stunningly good movie. Mm Mm-hmm. On the flip side, International is a stunningly bad movie, right up there with some of the worst, like the first Suicide Squad and Wonder Woman 84, in terms of just giant blockbusters that are absolutely, completely incompetent. Uh, So that's, yeah, that's our review (laughs) of those two films. So tune in two weeks from now for whatever the fuck we do next. 
Maybe we'll continue the Jones zone. Could be fugitive hour. Maybe not, though. We, uh, don't hold us to that. <laughs> I think he did kill his wife. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll see you next time.